Hi, y'all. This is Kristen Chenoweth. Hi, I'm Gloria Stefan. This is Sarah Bareilles. Hi, I'm Patty Lapone. This is Lynn Manuel Miranda. You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Broadway Podcast Network presents Giants in the Sky, How Sondheim and Lapine Went Into the Woods, with me, Ben Rimmelauer. Today's guest, Philip Hoffman, the original steward. Once upon a time. Philip Hoffman originated the role of the steward in Into the Woods on Broadway and also understudied the baker and other roles. His many other Broadway credits include James Lapine's original production of Falsettos, as well as Cabaret, A Catered Affair, Fiddler on the Roof, The Scarlet Pimpernel, Baby, Is There Life After High School, and the Mooney Shapiro Songbook, in addition to off-Broadway productions of Merrily We Roll Along, Falsetto Land, Rags, One, Two, Three, Four, Five, and A Letter to Harvey Milk. So I just want to know everything, and I guess I would love to start with, um, uh, were you like a Sondheim nerd before? Because Into the Woods was your first of his shows, right? Yes. Had you done anything like in, in regional or anything? And No, no, no. I grew up in, in my home. My mom was a singer, mostly classical stuff. My dad appreciated it. We had, I think, <laughs> so funny, now you're bringing me back. We had, I think, four... Uh, Broadway musical albums. Yeah. Kismet. Mm. Um, um, My Fair Lady with that Hirschfeld drawing that everybody knows. Um, Sound of Music. Mm. Was it Sound of Music or West Side Story or South Pacific? Might have been both. And West Side Story. Mm. So I thought his name was Soundheim. (laughs) And uh, we would sometimes listen you know, and I remember because there's a couple, you know, I will say adult things in West Side Story. You know, my father once said, well, that's, you know, adult. I remember <laughs> grandma pushes tea. I just thought she was pushing a cup of tea across the table. I don't know <laughs> if deal with that, but um, so that was the first. I auditioned for, um, for Sunday in the Park. Mm. Uh, I was thinking of this today, <clears throat> probably the first time I auditioned for him. And I think it was uh i think it was replacements not the original and we did it in the theater and it's been so long uh, since i've auditioned on a broadway stage you know you come in you go backstage it's very exciting because you're there maybe there's people standing on the stairs and the stage manager takes you in and maybe there's a piano on the stage or in this case the piano was uh, in the pit or on the floor in front of because i don't remember exactly where the pit was <clears throat> and there, kind of in the dark Stephen Sondheim and James Lapine and Paul Gemignani and Ira Weitzman, who was the Playwrights Horizon uh, artistic director and casting. And so this is the first time I sang for Stephen and I couldn't see him. I'll I'll tell you more of the story because you can always cut it out. I sang with you from Baby. So it was after I'd done Baby. So it was that was like 83, 84 or something, you know, which is sort of pseudo pop legit. Yeah. And to finish the song and I mean, did I say this? It was like auditioning for the Supreme Court. Okay, so I finished the song and Gemignani says, sing it with a German accent. And I was like, what? Because he was thinking of, uh, what's his name? Spark. Brent Spiner, yeah. Brent Spark. And I said, huh? And then he said, or somebody said, strident. So the, the accompanist, I'm not even sure who it was, started playing, rum, rum, rum. I said, I'd fill my life with you. you know, <laughs> I gave it a good shot. Of course, I didn't get the part. So flash forward, I go into audition for the workshop and Broadway production. In, had you seen, uh, of course, later on, you were on Broadway in Falsettos, but had you seen March the Falsettos? What was your Lapine no. awareness? No, uh, no Lapine awareness whatsoever. None. So, okay. Uh, so then when did you know that Into the Woods was even a thing? When I got the audition, I suppose. Um, <clears throat> it was in a small room as opposed to the big theater. 
This is 87 for the post San Diego workshop. Right. The workshop in New York. I had nothing to do with San Diego. Yeah. I heard some stuff about it later. Yeah. But this was just New York. And they did a thing that they don't do so much anymore. Or maybe they are doing it again. We auditioned for the workshop. And the whole thing was the workshop and the Broadway production. And there was going to be a break. They, in fact, wanted it to be, I'm told, of course, I wasn't in the room, wanted it to be one thing. And equity said, no, you have to you can give them the Broadway contract, great, but these are separate because they wanted it like two months between, something like that. Yeah. Small room, Stephen and James and someone from casting and I had the piano behind me and I sang I Love My Wife from I Love My Wife, which I was singing a lot those days. And Stephen Sondheim was nodding and smiling. It was all very sweet. <clears throat> and I thought, this is great. <laughs> You know, this is, I had done a couple of Broadway shows by then, but this was wonderful. And I think I was still of the, of the time where I expected this all to happen. Yeah. Now, despite some success, I got the fear of God in me. I know how lucky this is. Um, and they had me read uh, the Baker because the part was always going to be the understudy, just like a page. And they had me read, of course, the steward, which was what I was auditioning for. And the primary thing they wanted was to see the difference between the way I was, uh, what, obsequious, a, a sick event to the royal family and especially the prince, and proud and disdainful to anyone else. And I showed them enough of difference, and I got the job. And uh, then we did the workshop, which was, I think it was in 890 Studios. Yeah. So big, there were big studios. It was great. They constructed the, the, what we called the sweep, which would be the hill, the great big yes. rectangular. And it took, I think four, maybe three stage managers, assistants, you know, to move it around for all the different scenes. It was just wood and it was in the room. And, uh, and uh, Lara Lubavitch was choreographing and he was used to dancers, not actors. Yeah. He's used to ballet, uh, classical or modern dancers who just stood quietly and waited to be told what to do and jumped to it. We were actors. We were not quite like that. There were a lot of questions uh, and interruptions and, and you want me to do what, you know, <laughs> totally different. Now you're hearing my point of view on this. Of course, I'm not the be all end all. This is just my experience of it. Um, I am going to talk to Lars. So, you know, we'll see, we'll see what he says about you, Philip. Uh, and don't, let's not talk about him and me in particular. <laughs> um, so what he did was <clears throat> he brought in his people, his dance company. Yeah. And rehearsed stuff with them so he could show it to James. Ah. Even. And so he could get his idea across with people he could easily communicate with. So they would sometimes demonstrate it and then we would learn it, which I think is a, a good workaround because there, there, uh, there was a kind of a miscommunication. Um, was any of that like extremely choreographed? Like, was it a picture of what like a Michael Bennett version of Into the Woods would have looked like? I don't believe so. Um, you'll get a better idea from other people, perhaps. I mean, some of it was very specific. He talked about the style. Uh, we looked at a lot of old art like Bruegel, which I barely remember. It was heavy. It was, uh, I don't know how to describe it. So he worked on he worked on things that <laughs> was, man, I don't want to, I don't want to say anything that reflects badly on anybody. I remember there was one moment where he wanted us to skip. I think it was like the finale of the first act or finale of the second act to skip because it was this kind of folk dancing. I mean, I absolutely get what he was talking about. And Ed Lindek, God love him, turned to me and said, skip my ass. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> anyway, look, it worked. I mean, we did it. He did the workshop and he did the Broadway thing and there was a lot of wonderful, wonderful stuff in it. So uh, what else about stuff that was in the workshop? I am completely obsessed with the song Second Midnight. Oh, I got such a story about that. Why? You must know part of the story if you're asking. Well, all I've heard, I mean, I've, I know the song because I've got different recordings, including a weird demo with like George Lee Andrews and Maureen Moore that I don't even know why it exists. Wow, me neither. 
I just listened to a recording, which of course I can't give you, uh, from the workshop. Of- yeah, well, I think it might be the one that I've heard. It's like, well, the one I've heard is from a, a pre- an invited press rehearsal with the Broadway cast doing that song. Sure. Uh, and, uh, but it's, uh, I love the song and I've heard that you spent more time rehearsing that than any other part of the show and it lasted one preview. Well, I don't think that's exactly true, but yeah. let me tell you, let me tell you my story. Please. <clears throat> I just listened to it and it was just, it wasn't a presentation. It was just taken during um, a rehearsal. I, I must've put my little cassette recorder, which is how I learned music and how I did everything. I must've put it down on a chair. It was a five and a half minute song. And, you know, you know, I, I'm going to slide over to a memory to know. Now I can see you and not me, but I, I want to remember this stuff because I was writing this down. <clears throat> it was about family. Um, you know, uh, uh, the baker, Jack, Little Red, all grew up without fathers. Uh, Cindy, Cindy had an absent father and grew up without her mother whom she adored and she had an abusive stepmother. Uh, there was a whole lot going on. And this whole number, which happened at second midnight was about family and about the disconnect and not being able to communicate. There was a refrain that was repeated. I don't understand it. And it's about why can't my child do what I say or understand or know I love them. And it was, why are my parents treating me this way? And they don't understand. <clears throat> and the stage, the stage began to be divided into parents and children. The steward was a parent, obviously others, it was obviously whether they were parents or children. It was about abandonment. You know, the whole show really, it can be said it's about many things, but it was about community and how you, responsibilities and so forth and relation to community. And of course your family is your first community and all that. So. It went on and on, and it would, there was a lot of questions about the parents would say about how do you um, how do you hang on to them and how do you let them go when it's time and why don't they appreciate and know that I love them and the kids saying why don't they love me and why don't they appreciate I'm a grown up now or whatever <clears throat> and at one point near the end it culminated in this in this uh, couplet that I love the parents said the more you protect them the more they reject you. And the children said, the more you reflect them, the more they respect you. And I just get chills because it's so succinct. And I, and I had a line, lucky me, the steward had like a little line to himself. And I'll tell you about it because it relates to the end of the play, end of that. So we worked on it apparently tons in the workshop. And then we worked on it on Broadway. And during previews, I don't remember how many, we were doing it and they gave the announcement they, they were cutting Second Midnight, just cutting the whole thing. Um, and they were gonna rework it. So for a few days, we didn't do it at all. And Tom Aldridge, loved that guy. Tom Aldridge had a great idea. And on opening night, even though the number had been restated, reinstated, on opening night, we all got black t-shirts that said, Second Midnight Gone. <laughs> Right? Because it was always, and then I, I think I do tucked away somewhere. I was looking for it recently and didn't find it. Send me a photo wearing that t shirt. You, I will be a happy podcaster. Oh, it's all, it's stretched out. And I'll see if I can find it. What if you just hold it up to the camera? You know, I wish I had it. I wonder if anybody else does, but it, it would be at home and I won't be home till New Year's. So we'll see. And then I have to run off to Arizona to help my dad. But anyway, I will try. Thank you. Uh, it, it was wonderful. Now, why was the number cut? That's the question. <clears throat> well, they didn't discuss it with me, but this is what I think. It was, you know, midway or three qu- or two thirds of the way through the first act and the characters were too self-aware. Mm. I mean, some of it was the question, that refrain, I don't understand it. I don't understand it. Why don't they do this? And then some of those little... Um, what's the word he used to call them morals axioms you know sayings you can never love somebody else's child the way you love your own that the stepmother says that was in there several people had those amongst this beautiful sort of lyrical stuff so they took it out 
They replaced it then with that short, just quick talky version, two minutes gone, two minutes gone. And the rest of it, though reworked, not exactly as it had been, became children will listen yeah. at the end of the show. Yeah. <clears throat> My line that I sang in the workshop version was, um, I, I want to get it right. I keep getting the word wrong. Oh, guide them, but step away. Children will listen. And that became Joanna's line, the baker's wife, guide them along the way. Children will listen. And children will listen is just gorgeous and means so much and is so full. And that obviously was the place for it, not midway through the first act. So that was just, that was a great, a great thing. Yeah. So it's interesting that you've heard some of that and you know some more. That was something. Yeah. Fascinating. Ugh, I want that shirt. Um, now, <laughs> tell me, tell me about that process in the workshop. Um, so I understand that you. Uh, well, I've heard conflicting things. So Bob Westenberg remembers starting rehearsals uh, of the workshop as Cinderella's Prince and the Wolf, uh, with Burke Moses as Rapunzel's Prince. And then that uh, they found out his schedule. I think he was in the Crucible uh, in DC. He was in something and he left. So Burke Moses started doing uh, Cinderella's Prince. With the expectation that Bob would be back and Burke would, re <laughs> would revert to being Rapunzel's Prince. Right. Because other people thought that Bob had not been in the workshop at all and had not started till Bro. No, he started there. He started there and, and, and Burke, was not even doing his role. He was doing another role in the workshop. And then when the workshop ended, he wasn't invited to do the Broadway thing, which is tough. And, and uh, you know, that's the way it happened. I mean, again, I wasn't in on the meeting, so I don't know. It's and then, hard to imagine because um, it's one thing to play your part in a workshop and they're not happy with you and they replace you, but to be playing somebody else's part and get replaced when you didn't even get to do your own part seems especially unfair. Yeah, and I, uh, what can I say? I don't know why, I don't know why. I, I did a workshop once where I, where I played, I was, had a small role and an understudy and I ended up doing the understudy part the whole time. When that happened, I was given my old role, but it does happen sometimes because the workshops yeah. are scheduled in a different way. Anyway, he didn't get to do it. Uh, and uh, Chuck came in who had done to play Rapunzel's Prince. Yes. Chuck, now, who had I, done the other, uh, the West Coast I, one. I think maybe Chuck was offered the same workshop uh, Broadway package deal that you all were and was not available and I, had I to, and then maybe they realized they missed him or something. Um, I, I couldn't even comment. I don't know. But yeah. that's when I got to know Chuck and we shared a dressing room. And then he introduced me to Frank Wildhorn and we did some Wildhorn stuff together. So that was a funny connection that happened. Was he there. already working with Frank Wildhorn that early on? Yeah. Oh, interesting. He knew him from, I don't know, from school or something. And we were doing, um, uh, uh, Frank was working on early Jekyll and Hyde stuff and doing demos. And he asked, uh, he asked Chuck who he was working with and Ben Wright and Chuck and I, uh, went in and did uh, these early demos of these early Jekyll and Hyde songs. It was a different role. I was not doing what I ended up doing. Uh, um, but that was the introduce introduction to that. So kind well, of- Well, that's a another podcast we'll have to do because I'm interested in that. Um, right. But uh, I forgot Jekyll and Hyde was floating around for so many years before it- For many, many years. And the original book writer, you know, ended up getting a uh, concept or something credit. Mm. along with Frank, but then it all switched and, and became, uh, oh man, names. I'm over 60, names and knees, man. Even people I know well, suddenly their names are out of my head. Yeah. Anyway, moving on. Moving on. So, and then of course the other cast, I think the only other cast change, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think the only other cast change from the workshop to Broadway was The Witch, is that right? Yeah, there was, Suzanne Douglas was in the workshop. Um, Suzanne for a week and then Betty for a week. Is that right? No, 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 no. Sorry. Suzanne Douglas was playing uh, uh, Rapunzel. Oh. And, uh, you know who Suzanne Douglas is? Yeah, was, Suzanne right? Was, yes, passed away, sadly, just, just recently, a couple of yeah. years ago. She was lovely. She was a friend of mine. We would chat a lot. Um, and of course, but I haven't seen her except on screen in many, many years. So Suzanne was in it and was playing uh, Rapunzel. And then, and probably understudying Cinderella, she had a gorgeous voice. Yeah. 
Um, and it was Betty Buckley as the witch. And uh, oh God, the early version of Boom Crunch uh, and other things. It was just, it was different. It was yeah. different, but it was exciting. And it was a lot. Did Betty have um, Stay With Me as the witch or was that not involved, included yet? I'm not the best person to ask. I'm going to say yes, but it might've been a different person and, and I'm not there. Oh, you just reminded me of a huge thing about the workshop. What's that? Somebody must talk to you about this. So I'm sorry, I keep hitting the table. I don't wanna, I don't wanna shake the camera or the audio. <clears throat> Henry Morgan, TV show, radio personality on TV show. I think I knew him from What's My Line or I've Got a Secret, one of those shows on TV. He was the narrator. Wow. And Tom Aldrich was the mysterious man. I can't believe I didn't think of this. So wow. this was the workshop. Have you talked to Chip yet? Yes, he didn't mention this. Oh my God. Chip and I have a long history too. Yes. And I don't want to forget, I don't know where you'll put it or if you'll put it. I saw the version of Into the Woods in the park and some people didn't like that. I loved it. I thought it was inventive and not, not, not the definitive one. Ours was the definitive one, I say, biasedly. But the other versions all have things to offer. Yes. I love the one in the park. And I loved seeing Chip play the Mysterious Man. Yes. It warmed my heart. And it was great. Just great. You know, people are always asking me if I'm on Ozempic, and let me tell you, I do not mind them asking me that. But I'm not on Ozempic. They especially ask me that when they see me eating dessert, or desserts, or all the crap I eat when I'm out. But my secret is that when I'm home, when I'm by myself, I'm eating Factor. Factor sends me restaurant-quality meals that are ready to heat and eat whenever I am. No prepping, no cooking, no cleanup except for, like, my fork. And now you can enjoy Factor Meals, too. Go to factormeals.com slash giantsinthesky50 and use code giantsinthesky50 to get 50% off. That's code giantsinthesky50 at factormeals.com slash giantsinthesky50 to get 50% off. Okay, so workshop. Here, here's a little thing. I don't know if it's true. I didn't hear it firsthand. Somebody suggested Vincent Price to be the narrator and James nixed it because he didn't think it would be taken seriously. Again, you have to confirm that with somebody else. I don't know. Henry Morgan, great voice. He's doing the narrator. And Tom is doing the mysterious man. <clears throat> and we worked it out. And that was one of our performances. And then the next performance was something we had also worked out, which was Tom Aldrich doubling as the mysterious man and the narrator. Fascinating. And after we did that, I remember, I think it was James, maybe it was after the rehearsal or after the performance, he said, okay, how are we going to tell Henry? Henry? <laughs> because clearly he liked it better. But this, this is what happened at the end. Um, the, the narrator didn't die. Or, or, or if he died, he came back at the end. They're right where the baby cries and, and the baker says, he always cries when I hold him. Oh, that, that's the place. The baker says, I'm ruining the story. If you want to do the quote, I'm going to ruin it. At the end of the show, the baker's holding the baby and the baby cries. And the baker says, he always cries when I hold him. But in this version, Tom Aldrich was there as the narrator and said, I always cried when you held me. Mm. And he, I just got to chill. I do this all the time. He came in and they hugged. And I saw that barbershop mirror thing that goes on to infinity, mm. generations. And some, one of them said to the other, get back there where you belong. Because, you know, the narrator's not in the story. He's not part of it. So what this meant was, this was a celebration. The narrator playing the part of his grandfather and telling the story of when he was a baby and this wonderful stuff that happened. It blew me away. Yeah. And ultimately, that part was nixed by the creators. They wanted to do something else or they felt it wouldn't be clear. Again, I'm not in the room. I was the steward. I was this kid. So you can ask them. But I'll never forget what a wonderful, wonderful thing that was. Just great. 
Just well, in that version in the park, they made a big deal in the beginning of the narrator being the the baker and baker's wife's child. And then that was kind of the framing device. But I don't think yeah, they- Yeah, when they the kid and he had all that stuff in his backpack and yeah. all the toys he had became the characters. And yeah, yeah I thought that was very interesting. I, I enjoyed it. It seems like this, uh, this notion. Uh, so, okay, talk to me about that. Because the way I've heard it is that for this workshop, you did three different endings. Throughout of the three presentations from this workshop, they each had a different ending. One where the baker's wife didn't die, one where the baker's wife died, and one where everybody died. <laughs> you know what? I just remember the two versions, the Henry and the and the Tom. Um, there's, I'm not saying that didn't happen. Yeah. <clears throat> I'm just saying we all remember the things that really impressed us the most right. or, we were, or we were the most touched by so we're it's great that you're talking to lots of people because i i I don't remember it that way i do remember i do remember once later on broadway rj cutler who's become a terrific documentarian he was james's assistant yes i reached out to him i i I, on instagram but i haven't heard back i'd love to talk to him oh and i'm I'm sure he'll be great because he's really smart yeah, uh, he said something about how interesting it was that James, you know, killed off the baker's wife so early in the show, um, and that it was very brave. Or I, I mean, I don't remember. It was just an offhand comment while we were chatting. But RJ, smart guy, and and he's done. Man, he's gone on to do some great work. I remember there were lots of rehearsals, and I remember we were on a slightly raised stage, and a lot of people were watching. That's kind of all. I I just and Bernadette was there. But it was before I knew her. So I'm, rem- I'm I have a picture of Bernadette coming to talk to me. Must have been after something else. But I think she watched it. I'm not positive, but I think she watched the, you have to ask her. But I love Bernadette. All the nice things you've heard about Bernadette are true. Um, I remember we were in the theater and I was sitting on the arm of a seat and chatting with a couple of people and Bernadette came down the aisle to talk to us and she was standing next to me. So she put her arm around my shoulder and I, I put my arm around her waist and I said, you know, Bernadette, before we met, I used to dream about moments like this. Um, she was lovely. She met my parents. When, when I brought her to meet my dad and stepmom, she said, she looks like your mother. I mean, so she like, she paid attention. She was warm and professional and, uh, and she was great. I have a picture of us standing together at the recording. Going back to the other thing you said about the different interpretations of the show, with Into the Woods more than almost anything else because that original production was captured so beautifully with Lapine himself directing it for television. It seems to me that we can afford to do any, they could do Into the Woods Kabuki style. They could do it in sign language. I don't care what they do with Into the Woods. I'm game because we, they can't take away this digital thing we have that preserves it. That original video is so great. And, and the, the closeness of the framing really make the woods mm. lush. And Chip was never better because mm. there's a lot of little things he does and subtle things. Yeah. And I think, and I, believe me, I watched him like a hawk because I was the understudy and I had plenty of disagreements with the way he did things. But I got to tell you, he was never better. Yeah. And it was wonderful. Yeah. And uh, just, just so great. So many people have come to me and said, I came home after school every day and oh, I would yes. watch it. And that's why I wanted to be an actor. And I just did a show in Milwaukee uh, less than a year ago and uh, several months ago. And who did the 20 something? What did the 20 somethings and even the guys just over 30 want to talk about? Into the Woods. I'm right. not surprised at all. Uh, it's an incredibly influential piece. I mean, I think that that video is truly is like a gateway for so many people to musicals in general, and certainly to Sondheim, and uh, even to theater. I mean, I wouldn't be surprised if you went in for general meetings with Hollywood studio people, that half of them, when they realize who you are, would be fanning you for that. My son grew up on it. I have videos of him singing a little bit when he was like four. I have this adorable video where he was five and he's, my my wife, my former wife, uh, managed to get the camera on because whenever he would sing, we would pull out the camera and he would stop. And yeah, yeah. He's singing what he used to call the Swallow Me Down song because that was the lyric of Little Red. That's the song, he says. The girl, you know, the wolf eats her 
And then she goes outside and she sings it. That's the song I'm singing. Oh God, it's so- Follow me down. That's so, so adorable. The things and that- get The word's with. a little wrong, but it's just- Amazing. Gorgeous. Uh, anyway. That. So, oh, he so anyway, yeah, so it's preserved uh, and it's preserved beautifully and obviously, and Bernadette is so, is so uh, definitive in that. But I can't help but also be enticed by the idea of Betty Buckley in 1987 playing that role. I mean, you know. She was a powerhouse. Yeah. She was a powerhouse. You know, she totally commits to things. She was powerful. She sounded great. She did that first version of Boom Crunch, which if I'm not mistaken, she then recorded for one of her solo albums. Um, she did not. She didn't, or did she do it in a show? I seem to remember something about Betty Buckley and Boom Crunch. I could be no, I, she has sung um, Children Will Listen many times in different versions. And she did also on one of her albums do uh, Stay With Me and a medley with some other songs. Um, but she did not ever record Boom okay. Crunch. Okay, okay, see, I'm wrong. That's why you got to ask more people than me. But she was powerful and it was really interesting and it was really exciting. Chip said that he felt um, as thrilling as it was and, you know, to have Bernadette in the cast, that he knew now there was a really big star and that they were going to cut away from him and Joanna to get more material because the audience was going to want to see Bernadette. Huh, that's interesting. Danielle Furlan did not remember it that way. She felt that it was very clear that the dramaturgical trajectory of the show was wanting more material for the witch and it had nothing to do with the fact that it was Bernadette playing her, that it was just the story needed more fleshing out. Do, do you remember the fact, A, that the baker's material was being diminished as the witch's part was growing? And, or do you remember why you thought that was happening or anything about that? No, if that was happening, I was ignorant of it, but I, I did love Danielle Furland. Yes. Um, um, <clears throat> no, again, I wouldn't be the one to ask. It's interesting because uh, the witch always gets the last bow and there's something really satisfying about that. As much as everybody loves the baker's wife, everybody loves the baker's wife. And Joanna, you know, maybe we'll talk more about it. Joanna was brilliant. I learned a lot from her. Um, uh, anyway, no, to answer your question, I don't remember seeing that. I didn't know it as well. And remember, I only joined during the workshop. So I'm not so sure there was that many changes by then uh, between the baker and his wife and, and things like that. I know they, they all worked well together and it was fun. Like Chip described a scene in the second act with um, the baker and the baker's wife uh, when they have just met up with Little Red after she came upon Granny's house being yeah. destroyed and the baker's wife saying she'll have to live with us privately to him. She'll have to live with us now and him saying, I hate her and getting the biggest laugh of the show and then that being cut to make room because the witch, because it was Bernadette and she was a star and the audience wanted more of her was going to have to sing that reprise of Stay With Me, Lament it's called. And it has a little bit of children will listen also. That's... Um, uh -huh that had not been there previously. Um, do, you, do you remember that scene of saying, I hate her as the baby? I, I, don't, I don't remember, I hate her. Once you said it, I said, oh, I can see that. But there was a moment extant that was, she said, you don't want to scare the little girl. And he said, you can't scare her, you know, yeah. which always got a laugh. Yeah. Um, Chip, Chip, God love Chip. He's very specific. I can't, I can't speak to it because he remembers stuff because of how it affected him. And, and I came in later because when I was understudying, it was later and uh, I can't, yeah. I wish I could confirm for you, confirm or deny, but I can't. Yes. And uh, okay. So then, uh, so as you do that, whatever this presentations, as you recall, there was one mm -hmm. with Henry Morgan and then one with Tom Aldrin in both roles. And then you go away for, you think it was a month or two months? I feel like it was for two months, but again, I, I, I don't know where it's written down, so I can't say. And then you start rehearsals for Broadway. Do you remember, am I correct in thinking Broadway rehearsals were in the same room as the workshop had been? Likely, because it was another big room. Yeah. I'm trying to, I, pictures. I remember sitting next to Betty in the room because uh, <laughs> I took out a butterscotch and I said there after every opening number <laughs> because I pushed through the opening number and she made a comment, and, you know. And I kind of remember seeing 
Bernadette in the room. I particularly remember the thing I mentioned about recording that I had my recorder and she came and I think she sat next to me and I said, I didn't record that number because I needed her to know that I wasn't yeah. trying to do that. But it was another big room. It was a good Broadway rehearsal space. So it very well might've been at 890. Fascinating to imagine this presentation with all of you and Betty on uh, as the witch and Bernadette sitting in the house. I'm, I'm, 90% positive she saw one of them, but I, I could be mixing it up with another memory because I, I did something in a room very much like that. Yeah. She was watching and she came up to me afterward. So I wouldn't have known her before that. So right. the one she came up to me must have been years after yeah. Into the Woods. Well, I'm so, hoping I hope somebody can confirm. I yeah. hope somebody can confirm that. I'm sure she, she will remember that. Um, now, uh, so then you come back and uh, start now. Had you already signed your Broadway contract during the workshop? Yeah, you know they did them at the same time, and I think I think Dodgers regretted that, especially because they made a choice of losing Burke, and had to. I think they had to pay him for a year. Yeah, and and I don't think they do that so much anymore, unless it's true. right, right. But yeah, I had it. So man, I was I was thrilled. I was thrilled. It was so good. Another Broadway show, but this was Sondheim. Yeah. And even though I wasn't a Sondheim nerd, uh, I knew it was a big freaking deal. Yeah. So, yeah. It was fun. Also, it was nice to come back with people from the workshop, right? Because you've already established something. The workshop people. So it wasn't like you're going into no. this rehearsal meeting all new yeah. people. It was a kind of a reunion, similar to when we made the recording for PBS. Yeah. Some of us had left the show and yes. came back for a week. That's for later. We'll get yes. to that. Later, so, right? okay. Uh, in terms of cast changes now, Burke Moses is out. Chuck Wagner is in in the Rapunzel's print. Oh, because Jeff Blumenkrantz had done Rapunzel's prints in the workshop. I guess Burke he did. As, uh, but he was now your understudy and Ben's understudy and um, and Bur and well now Chuck's understudy. Chuck is in, and uh, Bob Westenberg is back as the Wolf and the Prince. Obviously, we've discussed Betty's out. Bernadette is in, and then you're. This is the first I knew that Suzanne Douglas was now out and, and Pamela Winslow was in. Yeah, right, right. Is it possible that they had cast Pamela Winslow and that Suzanne had been cast as the, because didn't Suzanne stay on as the understudy uh, in the run? I believe she was an understudy for a while. Yeah, so maybe she, she was- She was understanding the stepsisters. Yeah. Rapunzel, that's very, very possible. Because also like Marin Maisie later was like the um, Rapunzel slash witch understudy. Yeah, and she was, that's when I met her and she was great. Oh God, I, and I worked with her later and I knew her, wonder, these people, wonderful. And I, at some point, I just want to say Jeff Blumenkrantz became, first of all, a really talented composer and lyricist. Yes. And he's a great performer and a great voice and a really nice guy. Yeah. And I can say this quick, there was a 10 year concert version after 10 years of Into the Woods yeah. and I was in another show and it was opening night, so I couldn't do it. So, so um, uh, he uh, did the steward mm. and he, he brought to my theater for my opening night, a huge card that he brought around to everybody in the cast and they all signed it and said, you know, we'll miss you, have a great opening. And, and Jeff did that and it was just, I was so touched. I've never forgotten that. So and much. that's it. A lot of these people, we just, it was a bonding experience. It was hard work and it was so satisfying. So I, I have lots of nice things to say about those people. Anyway, go ahead. Back to you. Uh, so then you're in Broadway rehearsals and um, were the re was the rehearsal process really about getting the show on its feet or are they continuing to do uh, script changes and score changes during rehearsals? I think there were a lot of, there were a lot of changes. As you know, Second Midnight, we were still working on that. Um, I think there were a lot of little things and I just, I can't even remember them all. Uh, I mean, things I know about are uh, uh, the uh, addition of the Stay With Me reprise called Lament with the little bit of children will listen for the witch in the second act, early in the second act um, after Rapunzel dies. And then, um, before, well, the addition of children will listen, I guess after Second Midnight is cut. 
and the addition of the uh, no one is alone reprise that the baker's wife sings instead of uh, the m moment you described with the narrator. Um, right, so, right. Um, yeah, the children will listen. Uh, there was a big, I guess it was Boom Crunch. I mean, the witch had a song that yes. was changed drastically during the, the last midnight. Yeah. Last midnight, right. Yeah. And then, um, oh, something else that I, from these demos of cut songs, there's um, two that I assumed were cut early, early in the process, but I think one of them might have been in rather late. One was this one I think was cut was cut early, which was a solo for the narrator. Interesting questions uh, at oh, the moment. Oh my God! You said the title and it rang a bell, but I I have no other memory of the song. And I think the music still is the music we hear uh, in that moment before the narrator's fed to the giant. Um, you know, it's funny. I might know that title because it's in the score. Yeah. The I, name of the music that happens. I think Carolyn Marlowe uh, told me that. I think that's the case. Um, and then um, the other song I think was just called We Have to Give Her Someone. And it was the group yeah. number uh, sung in the moment of debating whether what to do because the giant wants Jack. We're not do we not do that anymore? We have to give no. someone. We have to give us someone to the steward and the. We didn't do that because I certainly remember that well, refrain. You, the dialogue is not all that different from the lyrics, but it's dialogue and not a song. So, but so you remember that song well. You have to give her someone. That's all I remember. Yeah. And, and that it would be, yeah, the, this one, the, no, you can't, you can't, you can't. And I, I guess it became dialogue. Yeah. Amazing. It's amazing what they do, these writers, these Lapines and Sondheims. Yeah. They put something together and they say, not quite, let's make a little adjustment. Man, it's, it's just brilliant. Was there ever anything that the steward had to sing uh, other than that line, Second Midnight, that you lost, that you remember? Um, <laughs> not to sing, but, but here's another story. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> we were in previews. I'm sorry, I'm laughing because I can't believe it. I don't even think I wrote this one down because I remember this only too well. Uh, we were in previews and we're running the scene. The giant's head is to my, my right. And we're doing those axioms again. I can't remember the word that James always used for him. Uh, and we had done some previews and other people had funny things to say and they would meld right into each other. And I had one thing to say and it was, uh, giants are not all as dumb as they seem. Mm. And then there were like eight counts of nothing. <laughs> and it, it never got a chuckle and I felt I hated it. And so we're running the scene. I, we're probably in our street clothes and they're all out in the house talking. <clears throat> and. I had a lot of chutzpah when I was younger. And uh, sometimes it was appreciated and sometimes I was taught that it's out of place, but it's all part of my education. I can't believe some of the things I said for another, for another podcast. Anyway, <clears throat> so I walk out on stage and I said, giants are not all as dumb as they seem, or maybe they are. And apparently all heads popped up. Suddenly they were all listening in the house. And when the moment was over, Stephen came down and said, uh, Philip, did somebody tell you to say that line? He knew damn well nobody did. <laughs> or were you just trying to be? And I said, no, I'm trying to be funny. I'm like shaking in my boots. And he says, I have to write, I have to rewrite that line, but that's not it. So first of all, let's pause. Stephen Sondheim just said to me, I need to rewrite that line. It's not good enough. And it was like, wow, but that's not it. And I said, yeah, right, not, not it, you know, because I, I just, I was trying to be funny. Later that day, maybe very shortly after that, he says, he comes down and he says, Philip, you know that line you put in? Put it in for tonight. And I said, oh, he said, yeah, we'll see if it works. And if it gets a laugh, it stays. And as he's turning away, he says, you know, smirking. If it doesn't, you're fired. And uh, <laughs> so I guess... It's funny, I don't remember putting the line in, but I know I did that night. Uh, what I remember is the interaction with Stephen. Steve, I, I, I still have trouble calling him Steve. It was always Sondheim or Mr. Sondheim, but even though he was always, he always referred to himself as Steve to us. He always signed everything Steve. Anyway, obviously they changed the line 
and I had to look it up. I had to go back to the video to say, because I had so many of those lines and they came and went. So this one was the greater the good, the harder the blow, which, which is typical of Sondheim. It, 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 it's layered. It, there's more, as you think about it, there's more yeah. to it. Um, I did the uh, York Theater revival of uh, Merrily. Yes. And Steve was around. And apparently he really liked that one. But yeah. <clears throat> I also knew him from that. And uh, I remember performing in one of his birthday things and he was in the audience. And as I exited the stage, I, I believe he recognized me when he looked and smiled. And yeah, it, it was great to, as minor as my connection to him is, it was always great to have that. And oddly, he and my mother were the exact same age. They were born the exact same day. So that was always in my mind. That's amazing. That's an amazing story. Um, I do want to take issue with your saying your connection is minor. But first, I just want to say, I just realized before we got on the call, I looked at our at your Wikipedia and we have the same birthday. So, May 12. yes. Yeah, 1954, my, the same year? Not quite. Not uh, you're my Taurus brother. So that's oh, nice. Cool. Um, but uh, <laughs> just you made me think of it with uh, so, so lines that were cut. I mean, I, I know those, those, those axioms. <laughs> changed a lot you know they wanted to find the pithy ones and i think they did find very yeah. pithy. now and what is this by the way this it's speaking of that giant line um it, there's also the line uh not all giants are dumb right. is it me i don't have a preconceived notion that giants are dumb is that something that other people walk around thinking somebody said and it may have been my character or it honestly i don't remember if it was me or maybe a little red uh, something about a dumb giant. Yes. That's yes. what starts it. And then the giant stands. But, even, but it's so odd. Like, I mean, I get the steward saying a dumb giant because the steward would call anybody a rude. The steward would make assumptions about yeah. people unfairly. But the giant said that as if it was like a complex, like, you know, Jews are cheap or something. It's like, no, is that a thing? Dumb giants? Jewish giant? Well, <laughs> I think the thing is, big and slow moving and you just yeah. you equate a lack of intelligence. I guess I so. think that was part of it. Uh, I think that was all, but it was, so maybe James, maybe he had that in mind yeah. or it was just a direct response to the dumb giant line. I'll add that to my list of follow-up questions for Lapine. Um, I only got him for half an hour, so I, I couldn't, I couldn't oh. get to everything. <laughs> you better be careful. And have you talked to Joanna? Yes, and she was so wonderful, so wonderful. Did she tell you about about It Takes Two and what that song is about and why she why she gets pregnant? Oh, listen, it's Joanna's story. Well, listen, I already did my interview with Joanna, so you tell me. Oh, I don't want to. I don't want to take it away from her. I mean, you you should. If I tell you, there's two parts to it. The second part is fine, but the first part was her interpretation of something, and I thought it was brilliant. But please. Don't play it on the air until you check it with her. Yes, absolutely. So when I went on as the understudy, this was kind of, I'd understudied and done other things, but this, I took this so seriously. This was, if I may, my first great job as an understudy. I really wanted to understand everything about it. And I went on, I don't know, two dozen times. And <clears throat> I played the part later in other productions, but that's another story. So I would go see Joanna beforehand. Uh, out of respect and it was fun and she was always nice and we would chat about what we expected and then after I had done it for a while we would chat more about uh, you know oh this worked and wasn't this nice and let's try this and I would do anything she asked because she knew what the fuck she was doing um, in fact another digression a couple months before she left the show <clears throat> I was going on again I went to her room, as I did. I usually brought her two flowers. And we sat and talked and she said, hey, there's this, there's this thing in the bean scene, which is when we buy the, buy the cow. Uh, it's a rhythm thing. I want to try this. Or let's do this. You know, and she, she demonstrated. And I said, okay, but you know, we've been doing this great. Because I loved doing, working with her. And she would, we would pass... We'd exit and come back and cross underneath the stage and she'd always give me the high sign or say something nice. And there were a couple moments that we had our own little adjustment because we'd done it and I loved it. My job was not just to keep the show moving, but I wanted all the actors to be happy when they said, oh, Philip's going on, oh, cool. Let's do that thing again. 
okay. So she says to me, I want to do a rhythm thing and it's different. And I said, of course, but you know, it's working. She said, eh, humor me. I said, sure. We did this new thing. And again, it killed because she knew what she was doing. So one time we're talking and we're talking about It Takes Two and she gives me the little backstory. God love her for this. And again, please ask her to confirm. The baker and the baker's wife, who never got a name, were kids growing up together. They lived near each other and they, they played together and it was always assumed that they would be together. So they got married and then life got hard and drudgery and difficult and they fall out of love. They bicker. <clears throat> when they go into the woods on their journey, they fall in love again. And that's why she gets pregnant. Mm. And I thought, oh, the magic is wonderful. So that's part one. Now, part two is it takes two. Another wonderful thing I learned from her. You know, it seems like a love song, like they're singing to each other. But she had this other idea and I was never clear from watching what she and Chip were doing exactly what, what they wanted. And so I went to her and said, tell me what you'd love to do there because I want to support you. And she said, <clears throat> she said, when I sing, you look at me. When you sing, I'm going to look at you. Because the first part of the song is not looking at the other person saying, you've changed, you're different in the woods. It's out thinking, you're by yourself, it's a monologue. And the other person is gazing adoringly like, Wow, she really looks attractive out here. Look how strong she is. And then, then I start to sing, you know, she's this. And I thought it took two. I thought it took one, but it took two. And meanwhile, she's looking at me. And that leads to this love song. And, and it was brilliant, but not the first thing you'd think of. So it's another, it's another thing I think about that she taught me mm. is, is where the focus is and how that enhances the moment. And the thing I, I loved about that is they fall in love and they go to kiss and the baker pulls her in and makes a joke and kisses her. Mm. In the first revival, the cow pushed them together. And I thought, apologies to the people who decided to do that. I didn't think that was as good. In subsequent things I've seen, the cow might be present and comment, but it's still the two of them falling in love again during that song. And that's the magic. And boy, anyway, that's that's one of my stories about Joanne. She was great. I love that story. Um, tell me more about uh, going on uh, as the baker, or or and and, and I, I guess you also covered Cinderella's father. I, I went on once at Cinderella's father. It was almost like a lark. Well, Philip, you know, you could do it, or we could do somebody else. You've never done it. Do it. We have a costume for you. So I did it. Because uh, wasn't he? Um, <laughs> When Tom was out of the show and Dick Cavett was the narrator, didn't Ed step into Mysterious Man for that period? Yes, and, and one of those times, maybe it was more than once, I think it was once, then I did Cinderella's Father so he could concentrate on the Mysterious Man. Yeah. And Dick Cavett, oh, Dick Cavett, Dick was great. Dick was great. Ben, I'm like gonna crack up here. I have so many stories. I didn't realize <laughs> that. But let's go back to what you're asking. Going on was fantastic. I loved the part. Singing No More was, was amazing, just amazing. And, and Tom Aldrich especially was, man, I would look at his eyes and I could see his heart. And I loved it. I always loved it. And as I said, I played it in a couple other productions and got to do it again, which was great. But on Broadway it was just so exciting. Gemignani in the pit, Gemignani is fantastic. I didn't hear you say that, that you had done other productions. Oh, I, did a, I did a production at Sacramento Music Circus that I loved. It was directed by Glenn Casal, Casal who's done it a lot. Yeah. He really has his understanding of what it's about, about Is family. That with Mary Gordon Murray? I did it with Mary Gordon Murray. I also did it on Broadway with Mary Gordon Murray because she yes, was. Right. Um, yeah, that was with her. And then I did a, like a college, guest artist college production. I think that was all with uh, with Judy McLean playing the baker's wife, who had done it on tour. I think uh, she may have. She may yeah. have. Um, but I don't know. You're, you're doing Broadway. You're doing Sondheim. You're doing it, and the cast was great. And since I worked really hard, I know nobody was pissed off when I went on. <laughs> um, in fact, 
Chip, at one point, Chip was on vacation and came to see the show. And I was actually fighting a cold. You know, nowadays you have a cold, everybody freaks out because they right. He said to me, you're looking a little green. He said, you know, I'm in town. I, could, I said, no way. No <laughs> way am I letting you go on. I got this this week. So, and it was fine. And it was fine. Um, oh, it was great. Did you stay the whole run? What's that? Did you stay the whole run? I stayed until, no, I let, I, no. I was there for a while and I left to do, I think I left to do one, two, three, four, five with Jared Gutierrez at Manhattan Theater. That's the Maury Yeston uh, piece. Maury Yeston, Larry Gelbart, more stories there. More stories there, just a few, but uh, which later after Larry passed and they and they dissolved the partnership on the song, um, uh, Maury rewrote it with somebody else and renamed it, retitled it History Loves Company, which is a much better title. Mm. But Larry Gilbert was great. And it turns out he went to grade school with my dad. Another story. Um, <clears throat> so I think I left and then a bunch of us came back to do the five performances for PBS for which I will be eternally grateful. Yeah. Uh, and then I left again. No, Adam, Adam Groner. Grupper. Grumper. Grupper. Yeah, I know the Adams. There's several, they're friends. He came in and took over. Jeff Blumenkrantz might've done more. Uh, I don't know who they all were. Did, uh, no, that was another play. Were you and never I, in the show when Kay McLelland was the baker's wife? Uh, uh, she was understudy and I, I'm pretty sure I did it with her or at least rehearsed with her. I remember her. She I was the final, remember. she was the final baker's wife too. Oh, well, I don't exactly remember. Yeah. Um, when we came back to do it, as I recall for the PBS, Bernadette did five shows, but Joanna stayed the full week. Mm. I'd like somebody to confirm that, but that's my yeah. memory. Because they recorded it over five performances. And I saw, I was signing in one day and, and Steve was there and he paid me a compliment because he's watching, you know, he was in the truck watching all the videotape. And he paid me a compliment, which he was wont to do with a lot of people. He, he loved to do that. He was good. But I was like, ah, well, uh, you're not so bad yourself. I mean, I, what do you say? What do you say to someone who's done everything he's done? Amazing. Just freaking amazing. But Kay was there as the sister, of course, and, and then at the end. Yeah. Um, and, uh, okay, so uh, do you just, did so you did the show... Um, longer than um, Bernadette. Uh, she left very early. Do you have any memories of Felicia Rashad or, or Betsy Joslin? Yes, or? yes. Uh, Felicia was very nice, worked really hard, took it seriously. I had no idea what she would be like coming in. She was lovely. And I was on as the baker her last weekend, I remember. Mm. And I came to see her to tell her, you know, it's been great and congratulations on your life. And she said, oh, you're doing it tonight. Oh, you're good. I mean, it was just a sweet thing. The, you know, there's a lot of people, there's a lot of negativity, there's a lot of stuff in our business, you know, because it's hard. But the people who are nice, and I've met so many, even if they're just being polite, it makes such a difference. Yeah. And she was lovely. She was great. Now, Betsy, I got a Betsy story. Betsy was fantastic. And I've known her, I guess that's when I met her, but you know, she's always done great stuff. And she did it, and she did it for a long time. And to my knowledge, they were searching for a name. So she was always an understudy, even though she went on over and over and over again, <clears throat> which was great for her. So I got I to gotta drink a lot of water. This is too much. <laughs> we had technical difficulties a few times in the show with show temporarily stopped, <clears throat> different things. So this day I'm on, Dick Cavett is the narrator, Betsy's the witch. It's time for the transformation. So she's in the cape, she's moving around. And you know the 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 uh, the mysterious man dies, and uh, the baker's wife is oh I'm gonna have a baby, and the the baker is like oh my father, but oh the baby, but oh my father he's dying, and he's my father I didn't know, and you, we, there were these sort of standard ad libs that everybody did, and I did the same ones when I was on. So we're doing it, and Paul Gemignani is you know the, this vamp da 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 whatever it is, and I, we do it. And I don't see the witch. And so I kind of start over and I kind of rephrase and everybody's doing the same thing, little pandemonium. And 
and no witch. And I started on the third time and I started to feel like, when are we going to stop the show? What the heck's going on? And suddenly <laughs> Betsy in her gown and no cape runs in from stage right and, and strikes her pose and Gemignani goes bang. And <laughs> nobody knew who she was because she didn't have the cape and she wasn't as well known as Bernadette. Yeah. So it was like, this woman and Dick Cavett said the witch and her youth and beauty. And I, I think it's in the beginning of the next scene when we're saying everything's returned to normal, Dick Cavett said, in case you were wondering who that Chanteuse was, <laughs> on stage, and my cousins were in the audience and said, oh, I'm so glad he said that because I didn't know who she was. <laughs> so amazing. Betsy was, and Betsy was great, man. Every lyric, every word you could hear. She was wonderful and so, and so nice. Yeah, yeah. Great, great memories. Were you, were you gone already when Nancy Dussault came in? Yeah, I was. I was. And then when we came in to do the PBS thing, she, she was asked to miss those performances. Yeah. You know, she might have been back for the last three that week. Right. I, I don't recall. I don't recall who played at that, those last three performances. Yeah. Because I was, as I said, only back for a week. Interesting. Yeah. Someone has a very, very, very grainy but professionally shot video with Nancy that they had described as being shot prior to the filming so that the, so James had something to work with for um, planning camera shots. Wow. But now I'm thinking it might've been from those performances that week after Bernadette was gone already, but they could still cut away to moments with other characters. What you're thinking? Wait, you're thinking- It might've been that they not were- Not the actually, PBS video. You're thinking of the grainy video you're talking about? Well, the grainy video they were saying was filmed uh, professionally by the same company to use to plan oh. the camera shots. Right. But I'm thinking it, that was a guess though, that it also may have been from one of the nights after Bernadette was gone. gone and oh, 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 I see. Because I said she may have come back. I got you. Because they could have, they still, even if they didn't use witch material from that night, they could have cut away to agony if it was better that night or whatever. Yeah. I don't know. But the performance that, yeah. that made the cut, yeah. um, I don't know if it was several performance. They, they could have easily mixed performances, but. Oh, it is for certain. I think I've heard that it's from three shows. That would be very possible because they tried a couple and they practiced and then they yeah. did something depending on what they had. Because so many things can go wrong technically. Yeah, a little clown glitch or something. Else. Yeah, or even just small things. You know, somebody's shirt collar pops in a weird way that's distracting, you know. Yeah, right. Uh, live theater. Um, <laughs> oh, man. Yeah. Well, uh, I'm so happy that it was preserved so beautifully because it is such a, a treasure for, for I'm time. so and grateful. When I keep meeting people who said they watched it, it's just, it warms my heart. Yeah. Well, I'm so grateful to you. I mean, it's really, it's a treat to talk to you. I could talk to you for hours and hours. Um, this is so great uh, to have all this insight. Yeah, I feel like there's there's more, but oftentimes I, uh, I don't remember them all. Oh, there was the time I fell down. Oh, what was that? <laughs> uh, it was with Joanna. I loved my costume. Okay, two things that costume just reminded me, and then I'm done. So this one, you know, there's a there's a website, there's a Facebook group called I Fell Down on Broadway. Hilarious. And there's a bunch of stories in it, including mine. <clears throat> and if you ever talk to Nancy Opal. Oh yes, I've heard her story. It's fantastic. From it's fantastic. Evita, you mean, right? From Evita, yeah. I can't tell. So I'm coming in to find uh, the baker's wife and I, she's got the shoe. She just got it from Cinderella. Cinderella runs off. And, I'm the first one on and I'm running up the stairs to the sweep. I love my costume. It was so funny, this pear shaped thing. I wore this bodysuit with padding. When it hung on a hanger, it looked like a plucked turkey. Get ready. <laughs> but sometimes the knees were a little tight. And for whatever reason, this day, I'm running up the stairs and suddenly I say, I'm falling. And yeah, I can't stop myself. And next thing I know, I'm on my back and I think, okay, nothing hurts. Let's go, where's my staff? And I look and just under the sweep is my staff now shortened to about 14 inches because it must have broken my fall. And I pick it up and I run around and I say whatever the line is to the baker's wife with it. And she <laughs> looked at me like, are you okay? And apparently I was. So we finished the scene 
And there I am for the rest of the scene, you know, the prince comes in, the, I think Jack's mother comes in and, the, and I'm holding this scepter in one hand instead of my six foot tall staff. Totally bizarre, I felt. So <laughs> I love that. Um, and the last thing that you saying costumes reminded me of, I think it was costumes and not props. And I guess it was rehearsal, but um, we're in this room and there was a question. I don't know if it was about the witch, honestly, or if it was about the wolf because the wolf's package was always a question, how much to show, how much not. But there was a discussion and we were in the rehearsal room and Anne Hold Ward and James and a stage manager and an actor, I don't remember who and somebody else, they all came together with positive enthusiasm to solve the problem. And I wasn't part of it, but I sort of walked by and I couldn't listen to their discussion, but I thought, this is what it's all about. They're just coming and everybody has their input. Everybody's listening and they're gonna solve the problem and figure something out. And I just, it's one of my best memories of, uh, mm. of being in the theater, being in the musical theater and, and how wonderful it is. Mm. Well, it sounds like this was truly one of the, the greatest experiences a person could ask for in it. It was. And uh, we're, all, we're all so grateful to have it as fans. So thank you for that. And your very significant connection to the Sondheim uh, Pantheon. Uh, <laughs> yeah, well, he, I, I'm really lucky and really happy that I, had, that I was a part of it. Absolutely, absolutely. Thank you for listening to Giants in the Sky, how Sondheim and Lapine went into the woods on the Broadway Podcast Network. Look out for episode 24 with Mary Gordon Murray, the baker's wife on tour and Broadway replacement. Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theatre Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theatre professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the Rise Theater directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E dot org because only together we rise.